Welcome to Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, a Minneapolis composer. And I started the show because I wanted to share insights from other songwriters and composers about how they make music. You can listen to all the episodes and find out more about these artists at ComposerQuest.com. This episode, I talk with the talented and prolific composer Mary Ellen Childs, who's composed over 60 pieces, many of which are multi-movement extended pieces. Surprisingly, she didn't always think she could be a composer. I had always been very curious about composing, but a little bit intimidated, thinking that you had to be a born genius and channeling operas by the time you were a teenager, and that wasn't me. We talk about Mary Ellen's inspiration for her pieces, like Dreamhouse. Before the roof had been enclosed again, the protective tarp was blown off in a big storm. And if you're standing in your living room and it's raining on your head, that's an experience that really does change you. (laughs) We talk about how it's okay to not know exactly where you're going when you first start a composition. I rarely plan out an entire piece in advance. It just doesn't make sense to me. I usually plunge in. I have a lot of ideas. And then it's almost like plunging into the middle and working your way out to the sides. And finally, we talk about one of Mary Ellen's future projects, which sounds pretty cool to me. I've become very interested in scent, how the nose works and how it affects our emotional state because music can also do that. And so to put these two together, I think might be some pretty rich ground. So on to my talk with Mary Ellen Childs. Mary Ellen, thanks for joining me on Composer Quest here. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I've been listening to your stuff lately, and it's cool hearing your recordings because I notice a real definite style that's come across. And I think one reviewer called it pointillistic, and I don't know if you like that description of it, but I kind of, that that jumped out at me. I suspect I know which piece uh, that reviewer was talking about. (laughs) I don't know that that's typical for everything I do, but um, there was a piece that I wrote for a solo accordion uh, called Oapoa Polka. And it was for part of a larger collection of pieces um, called Polka from the Fringe that accordion player Guy Klusevic commissioned some years back. And he went to quite a number of new music composers and said, write me a polka, whatever that means to you. The piece I wrote for him uh, was for solo accordion. And I decided to sort of take that oompa bass and run with it. But the piece starts where it's very pointillistic, and you would never guess it was a polka or an oompa bass. And then it gradually sort of coalesces into this constant little oompa bass and these kind of interlocking figures between the two hands. Yeah, I was listening to that one, and I think it's interesting how you do have that, like you said, interlocking rhythms, which I've noticed in your other pieces, too. Yeah, that I'm rather fond of. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that style. Yes, you picked up on that. that. That's something that I do quite often. Is It's kind of a nice sort of 
way to have the ensemble work together with that kind of interlocking, almost hocketing kind of rhythms so that no single instrument stands out in the lead. It's not about, you know, the melody in the foreground and then the accompaniment. It's really about all the players sort of interacting in a way to create a single texture. Yeah, I did notice, like, there isn't a distinct melody necessarily. It's It kind of comes from all these little pieces. How do you go about composing something like that? Well, you know, it really depends upon the piece. So, you know, if we take a piece like Parterre, which is very interlocking and is very much what you describe, has these little sort of snippets and um, and a few longer melodies, but more often sort of little bits of melodies that the players trade back and forth. For that piece and for most of the work that I do, I start with an idea. I start with a concept. Um, I don't usually like sit down at the keyboard and start playing around and see what comes out. I usually start thinking, what is this piece? What's the nature of it? What's the instrumentation? What kind of thing do I want to explore? So parterre is for all reed instruments, at least the whole first movement of the piece. It's soprano saxophone, clarinet, bassoon, and accordion. And I loved the idea of these instruments that have a similar timbre, but not exactly identical. So it wasn't like writing for four bassoons. It was, you know, just these all these sort of reedy instruments. And so in the first movement, I use them for the most part kind of high in their range. And so having the bassoon in the same range maybe that the soprano saxophone is playing and the same with the clarinet and the accordion sort of being in that same range. And then you can really play around with the interaction between the instruments. It gave me a lot of opportunity to do some really nice rhythmic interplay. Yeah, I like that effect. It's almost like you have a smaller color palette like maybe just shades of blue or something, but but really exploring the heck out of those shades yeah, of blue. Yeah, yeah. but it, it feels cohesive that yeah. way though oh. too. It's interesting listening to Click. Also, you're... you listen to Click. Well, I watched. Okay, good. I watched Click. <laughs> At one point, it was broadcast on the radio. It was bro- oh. broadcast on Wisconsin Public Radio. <laughs> huh. So the. The piece is for three claves players. Correct. And it's, in your mind, much more of a visual along with the... Yes. So it's for three claves players who stand shoulder to shoulder, and they grasp their claves sort of one in each fist, which is not the way claves are typically played, but that's the way we play them. And they play these rhythms on their own, but on each other's claves. So it's very highly choreographed. It's sort of a fast, interlocking, almost game-like piece. You know, at one point I use patty cake figures. So it really is meant to be seen as well as heard. <laughs> Interestingly, a friend of mine, a Ghanaian drummer, really feels like that piece is very melodic. But of course, from his tradition, that sort of drumming is very melodic. So he could hear it that way with the different tones between the claves. Uh, 
I saw a video of your group crash. Yes, crash. Yeah. One of the pieces is using zippers. And... Right. For that piece, I had to work closely with a costume designer because I knew I wanted something in their costumes that we could make use of. And so we hit upon these ideas of zippers. There's the zipper that actually closes the front of the jacket, but then there's a little short side zipper, which is a little pocket. It was really fun to play around with that. Someday I'd like to go farther with what you can do with a costume. What have you learned from doing all these visual percussion pieces and playing with sounds? Where do I start with what I've learned? I've learned so much. One of the things that I've learned is, although... Most of this work is created for my own group crash and primarily performed by them. I have had other groups take on some of these pieces. So there are other groups that have done click. Actually, quite a number of them now over the years. And what I see is that each group has its own personality. And that's fascinating for me to see how their movement personalities come through in the piece. So one group might be a little more lyrical. Another group might be much more martial. Another group might be very, very playful. (laughs) Most musical groups don't really pay a whole lot of attention to how they're crafting the movement of a work. And with this, you're asked to, because they aren't trained in movement, a lot of what comes through are their natural patterns and their natural movement expressions. And that's been really fascinating for me to watch. Well, um, you have a new work coming out, Wreck. Yes. It's just recently released on CD on Innova and, you know, is available all the usual places, Amazon and iTunes as a download. And it was composed for a full evening dance piece choreographed by Carl Flink, who's the artistic director of Black Label. And the piece is about, and it's, it's not a narrative piece, but I can say that it is about an oar boat on Lake Superior and the crew in that boat and the ship goes down and all the crew members are moved to the last airtight container in the ship and yet they know there's no way out. really about facing your own death. So it's a very intense piece. (laughs) It's very dramatic. The dance is very highly physical. Much of the dance was created by the time I started writing music. And so I went to rehearsal and I would um, get video of the dance. And then I would really pour over that video and learn it. And I felt very much like I was almost scoring a film. And I was going for sounds that to me were reminiscent of deep water. And I actually purchased a very large gong, (laughs) primarily for use in this piece, because that to me just literally has that resonance of deep water, of depth, of mystery. The whole evening was comprised of a lot of shorter movements, and some of them I thought of as being the note pieces. In other words, I was actually writing them out note for note. And 
then there were other pieces that were more what I call the sound mass pieces. And so instead of putting a part up in the players with the notes all written out on the page, I might describe to them what I wanted. I might say to them, I want you to start, you know, on the lowest note of your instrument and do long, slow glisses from bottom to top. When you get to the top, go back down and start over again. You know, I couldn't even achieve that by writing it out note by note, or maybe I could, but it would take the players so many rehearsals to take it off the page and make it musical. So it was more, for me, it was more about how do I get that kind of emotional expression? It was different for me and draining to work on. And the players actually tell me that it's pretty emotionally draining to play that, but really satisfying. Who inspires you as a composer or Mm. what inspires you? Yeah, I'm often inspired by other art forms. You know, I like looking at dance and seeing what choreographers are doing and how they do it and what's going on in that field. But also sometimes images will inspire me or I do think because I think a lot about what I write that concept and ideas can really inspire me. So for instance, Dream House which is a full evening piece, came about because of the construction that was going on around me. And I mean that house construction. (laughs) I built a studio in my house on the second floor where there was no second floor. So it was a huge project, taking the roof off the house and building up. And it changed me on a, not just a intellectual level, but it changed me on a physical level to experience that in my body things that I thought were permanent, like walls and a roof over my head, that they were actually changeable. And I think that was probably brought home by the fact that shortly into the construction project, before the roof had been enclosed again, the protective tarp was blown off in a big storm. And yes, (laughs) picture this. Yeah, there was a lot of damage on the main floor of my house. I mean, if you're standing in your living room and it's raining on your head, that, that that's an experience that really does change you. Oh, yeah. Um, and then yeah. to see the house come back together again, as if none of that had happened, I wanted to express that in a piece. And so Dream House resulted and uses imagery, multi-image video, as part of the live performance of the piece. And the video was skyscraper construction there was there was one movement that was yes skyscraper um, construction and the videographer was actually up there with the construction workers so he was filming from up really way up in the sky and it's this beautiful footage where these girders are being lifted by a crane and these heavy 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 beams are floating in the air just beautiful that's one of my favorite images in the whole piece. I'm glad you picked up on that. Sure. Did you use any video from your own house construction? No, I didn't. <laughs> because by the time I got the idea to do the piece, mine was done. Oh, okay. And I was inhabiting the space. Yeah, mine was done. But I did follow another construction project that the same builders um, were working on. 
they would set up a camera and do time-lapse photography that I could feed into this project. And I spent a lot of time at that uh, job site just to sort of absorb the feel of the work and kind of think about the piece. And here's a really kind of interesting thing that happened is there was one day, this was a very large house that they were building, and it was so large it needed one of those big I-beams, those big heavy things, and they had to crane it in place. And I happened to be on the job site that the the day they were doing that, and I was fascinated by the way this crane lifted this thing up, and it floated in the air and put it in place. And that day I came home and I wrote a particular segment of the music thinking about what I had just seen. So now fast forward many months to the time where we're putting the video to the music, and I had not told the videographer what I was thinking of when I wrote that movement. And here, what does he come back with? He comes back with this beautiful image of these I-beams floating in the sky. And I was floored huh. <laughs> that he picked up on that. Well, that's cool. So there is, there is a connection there from the music to... There was images a you were thinking. really obvious one in that case, huh. and the fact that we had not talked about it is yeah. pretty surprising. What are some composing techniques that you use to like, put this image of an I-beam in place? Well, let's see. What is that piece like? That piece is a string quartet, and I wrote very, very high, like in the stratosphere for these instruments, so very high harmonics for all of them. And so all four instruments are just sort of floating up up there in the air. And that was really the technique. And then I used material from another movement that was a that ended up being about the fast pace of construction, but I slowed it down and made it really high and ethereal for this particular moment. Like with Dreamhouse, how do you plan out your entire piece and then put that into into action when you're actually composing? Yeah, you know, well, composers work differently, and I rarely plan out an entire piece in advance. It just doesn't make sense to me. I usually plunge in and start sorting things out. Um, you know, I start. I have like a lot of ideas, and I start somewhere. And then it's almost like plunging into the middle and working your way out to the sides. With a shorter piece, I typically start at the beginning and write straight through to the end. But with something like Dreamhouse, I did not know the order of the movements I was writing until after they were written, rehearsed, we had a rough recording, (laughs) I was giving the material to the videographer and to my other collaborators, and only then did I really spend a lot of time figuring out, okay, what is the order of these pieces? And what I did was I put the recording in my car CD player. While I drove, I got a lot of work done because I would try this movement after that one and then after that one. And I just played around with it until I felt like I had it right. That's good to hear Mm -hmm. because that's kind of the way I work too. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people I've interviewed lately have said they, well, no, I, I have to plot out the entire structure first and then go to the details but i don't know i i find it all like that are we well (laughs) (laughs) it's great i suppose if you can work that way but that that has never made sense for my brain Hmm. sounds like you're the same yeah i tend to 
come up with ideas that I like and then kind of shift them around. And that's, I think, the coolest part about being able to do digital sound work and put things into the computer in recordings and then kind of shift things around. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. How do you work with your computer when you're composing? Do you compose traditionally, like notating? When I write instrumental music, I do tend to notate things in standard notation, at least as much as makes sense. In that case, I work sitting at my computer. I use Finale, uh, which is mainly a copying tool. And so when I'm done with my piece, I have a finished score. However, there are some pieces that don't lend themselves to standard notation. So then you have to go to plan B. Um, most of my visual percussion pieces, as I've already said, they, you know, you just can't notate all of that stuff that's critical to the piece. So you have to find another way to communicate with your players. Fortunately, in most of those pieces, we're working in rehearsal. So a lot of the communication can be verbal. But then I tend to take some detailed notes so that I have a record of what the piece is, and I can kind of play around with a piece then in between rehearsals. And then if we come back to it three years later, we can recreate it along with the help of the video, or if I need to send it off to another group. Sometimes those scores end up being some kind of pictographic notation that I've invented. Sometimes it's an outline format for those pieces and naming patterns or sections with some identifying name. So, and that's the way my players and I talk to each other. So we might say, you know, start at the railroad pattern, start at the everybody cross, start at the windshield wiper, and no one else but my players will know what that means. But, you know, that's how we talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could talk a little bit about your life as a composer, because it seems like you have been getting residencies and grants. And well, first of all, when did you decide you wanted to be a composer? When did I decide? Well, I think I came to it pretty late. I grew up playing flute and piano. I started out in college as a math major. But I knew I really loved playing the flute, and I probably really wanted to do music, and so I started taking all the required courses that a music major would be taking so that if I changed my mind... I wouldn't be behind. And sure enough, pretty quickly, I changed my mind. (laughs) But I I still wasn't composing at that point. I had always been very curious about composing, but a little bit intimidated, thinking that you had to be a born genius and channeling operas by the time you were a teenager. And, you know, I, that wasn't me. So I didn't actually start composing until very late in my undergraduate career, and then I had a lot of encouragement, um, which meant the world to me and changed my life. And I went to graduate school in composition at the University of Illinois, and I think, you know, so it was somewhere in there that I realized, even though I had no clue how I might make a living doing this thing, that that's really what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I had always been attracted to some kind of creative expression. I had danced and choreographed when I was young, but it just took me a while to find my way to musical composition. I've been fortunate to have a good number of commissions on my plate right now and some grant support and some interesting projects coming up. And right now, one of my current passions is research for a piece that 
I don't know what form it's going to take. I don't know when it will be ready. It might be still a couple of years off, but I've become very interested in scent, researching scent and how the nose works and what design scents are like as an art form. And I want to do something with music and scent. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll have to keep us posted on I that. I will. I'm pretty consumed with it right now. And it's been wonderful to talk to sense scientists and really find out more about how it affects our emotional state because music can also do that. And so to put these two together, I think might be some pretty rich ground. Yeah. I had a thought like that the other day too, because it is so tied to like thinking about past events and yeah it's very powerful sense for us it can put us in a time and a place so i i just feel like there's something there i don't know yet like how it's going to be disseminated into the space you know it's going to be a concert version and we're going to pipe in some aroma or if it's going to be recorded with uh you know, scratch and sniff. I mean, yeah. I don't think I'm going to go that direction, but there are a lot of possibilities. There are a lot of things to think about. You know, maybe it's not a concert setting. Maybe it's a gallery. Maybe it's a smaller scale performance with a, only a few people in the audience. Maybe it's, I mean, there yeah. are a lot of possibilities. I'm not, I'm not well, there yet. Um, it's, I, you got me thinking now. <laughs> this is interesting because like scents spark these memories, but they're so specific usually to certain people depending on hmm. the kind of scent right when music to me kind of does the same thing brings up these past memories and sometimes people share it because they both heard this song on the radio or they both had that scent mm-hmm. somewhere but hmm. how do I you think th- i'm gonna have to do some test cases yeah and see like kind of play around with how do people respond that's kind of what my brain has been going over lately. Like maybe I just need to do some experiments and see what kind of reactions I get from people about combining certain musical worlds and certain scents. You know, I certainly have enough recorded material already. I could put something together as an experiment. I really want this combination of music and scent to feel like it comes from a place of deep understanding and not a gimmick. So this is not about listen to this, smell this, oh, isn't that cool to put the two together, but really deeply understanding how scent works in our brain, how both art forms affect how we perceive space, for instance, and then design what the project is going to look like based on that deep knowledge. So that's why I'm just, I don't know yet. I just keep saying, I don't know, I don't know, and that's why. (laughs) It's good good to not know exactly where you're It is. It's very good. I concur. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you have any advice for people who maybe want to try what you've done and just set off on this adventure to actually compose and try to do that for Mm. a living? Yeah, what would my advice be? I think I would say do a lot. Have experiences. Listen to things. Go hear things. Write pieces get them performed, you know, put on your own concerts, whatever sort of makes sense for you. Just go after it. Just do. Don't wait for things to come to you. Having experiences will give you food for thought. It will give you ideas. It will give you information. It will give you contacts. 
how you play that out, like what somebody might do, is more individual. So maybe somebody's going to travel a lot. Maybe somebody's going to start a little concert series. Maybe somebody's going to start a series of podcasts. So it's like whatever you really are drawn towards, follow that lead and it will take you somewhere. Yeah. Well, I I think that's um, about all I have for questions here, Mary Ellen. Thank you, Charlie, for yeah. this opportunity. Yeah, it was great having you in. And uh, for people who want to check out your music, where's the best place to do that? Probably my website is a good place to start, maryellenchilds.com. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Composer Quest with Mary Ellen Childs. Look for this episode at composerquest.com, and I'll have links to all the music you heard. And also, if you enjoyed the episode, say hi at facebook.com slash composerquest or twitter.com slash composerquest. I'll leave you with a sample of one of Mary Ellen's pieces for two pianos called Kilter 